one of the best things about visiting him out in Idaho is you walk out his side door and into a massive garden that's bigger than this room. And you can just get whatever you want, eat it fresh. I really have a deep appreciation for what he does. But it wasn't always like this. In fact, when I was a kid, I hated his garden. He's always had a garden, and his kids were responsible for weeding it. And I had to do an hour a day. Timer on, one hour in the weeds. And for a kid, now adults, weeding can be therapeutic. It can be wonderful, meaning in the garden. Not for a kid. An hour is forever as a kid. And no one wants to weed forever. And also vegetables were not anywhere near my food pyramid. I was like, I was like a devout follower of Mrs. Hostess, Captain Crunch. I started the church of Captain Crunch. Anyway. Um, <laughs> but anyway, I have a fairly developed aversion to any kind of gardening. Just ask my wife. It's a, it's a real chore when it comes to gardening around my house. But anyway, it was about eight years ago with a little encouragement from Mr. Bronson back there, who's also a great gardener. He said, you should really try it. So I said, well, if I'm going to do this, I want to do what I want. And I want sunflowers because I love sunflowers. So I rented a rototiller. I rototilled this big patch in my front yard. Well, it wasn't that big, but you know. And I planted copious amounts. I planted over 300 sunflower seeds. And I designed the garden. I didn't just toss them. I designed the garden. I had rows. So I, I had planted sunflowers that would be short, sunflowers that would be really tall in between, sunflowers with huge heads, sunflowers with little heads, different colors. And it was all designed to be like that. And then I would water the mud, the dirt, every morning faithfully. And then that first morning, I still remember there were these little plants. And oh, it was magical. It was exhilarating. And I was like, this is why people like to garden. But then my garden never really went from there. <laughs> I got a few nice sunflowers, no doubt, but I'd go out some mornings and what were th promising little sprouts or whatever they're called were all of a sudden half gone, whether deer walked through or my rabbits, and then other plants would grow and look beautiful and just never, ever, ever have a flower. And then there's some just, there was nothing. So that's what happened. But here's the thing, as frustrating as it was, that's what got me really starting to understand this parable. The parable of the sower is massively important, massively. All three synoptic gospels have this parable. They place it in the exact same place, excuse me, as an introduction to the first major collection of parables. And all three writers give it an extraordinary amount of space. Each gospel, it is recorded almost identically. First you have the parable, then you have a question and answer session with Jesus. And then finally, you have Jesus' own interpretation of it. And so all of that, when you're reading the Bible, when all those things come together, like it's a big flashing neon sign, pay attention. Pay attention. Now, here's the problem. With this parable, to do it justice, we need three or four weeks, and that's not what we're going to do. We're not going to go into a mini-series. What we're doing, looking at this this morning briefly, is because it will help us with Galatians chapter 5. That's what we've been doing through Galatians. Remember, we'll look at Galatians. We'll go into other parts of the scripture. This will help us tremendously because we've spent the last two weeks looking at the context for what Paul is going to get at. Remember, we're about to examine these very famous lists of Paul, the lists of the fruit of the spirit and the works of the flesh, right? We've all heard these for most of our lives if we've been in church, and if we haven't, then they seem they can take on meanings all their own. So we've spent two weeks trying to set up context for this. And last week, what we did is we had this eye-opening study of a battle that's raging inside all of us. And we saw that our role in living into the kingdom of God is not to work at bearing fruit, 
or to work at not doing these bad things. Instead, our role is to be focused on what causes these things in our lives. That's because there's something that causes these things and that's where it comes from. All the work in the world isn't gonna do it. So what we did last week is we actually used a Cherokee parable, an old Cherokee parable about two wolves fighting in us and that the wolf we feed is the wolf that ultimately is going to win. And I thought for me anyway, that was incredibly eye-opening and helpful to me and it seems it was to others because I, I think I got more response this week than I've gotten in a long, long time to, to one of my teachings. So I, I'm going to have to find more old Cherokee parables, so that's a good thing. Um, so today I thought we'd look at a Jesus parable and to help us understand what Paul is getting at in Galatians chapter 5 because Paul actually uses the same metaphor as fruit bearing as Jesus is here. All right, but before we dive in, I do need to get you a little, a couple few side notes just to catch up on really what's happening as parables so I, I can try to uh, break it apart from maybe where, where we are used to holding this in Christianese and in the Christian vernacular. Maybe by doing this quickly, it's going to lead to more questions. I'm sorry, I'll be happy to answer those questions. But there's some tough language in this parable. In fact, I left out the dialogue between Jesus and his disciples because if we don't have time to break that down, that's... Those are some of the most misunderstood verses, I think, in Scripture and can lead the wrong way. But let me just give us a little context for, for the parable that will really help us, all right? So this, in the parable, Jesus says, the farmer sows the word of God. So I used to think Jesus is the sower, and he goes around um, planting, sprinkling the Scriptures, and then he left us to continue the work, all right? That's sort of how I used to understand this. But that's actually not consistent with the teachings of Jesus in the New Testament. So consider John chapter 1. This is very important. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Oh. So here you go. See, Jesus Christ is the Word of God. He's the Word of God. So the primary understanding of the phrase Word of God in the New Testament has to be consistent with this passage. So what that means then is that the parable Jesus was telling is that the seed is Jesus. He is the second person of the Trinity. That's who's being sowed. And so that means the sower is God the Father, which means, according to this parable, that Jesus has already been sown everywhere in the world. See, the soils are representative of every kind of possible person. Jesus has been sown everywhere. This is important to understand for a few reasons. One, for more than 1,500 years, it wasn't this way in the beginning, but something shifted, you know, three or 400 years into Christianity. For the last 1,500 years, Christianity has often acted as though the Word wasn't anywhere until we brought Him there. But what this parable reveals is that all Jesus ever asked us to do, and what the earliest apostles understood, and the early Christians after the apostles understood, is he asked us to go and tell people the good news of what Jesus, who was already there, has done for them. And that's important. Really important. It changes things, doesn't it? And we'll look at why. And two, another thing that's important about understanding Jesus Christ is, If the seed is Jesus Christ, then the tree that wants to be grown looks 
like Jesus Christ. Right? Sacrificial love of others with all these good fruits. That's important. You see, you can always find scripture to validate any worldview or the thoughts you want. But if it's Jesus being sown in us, <laughs> Jesus Christ is clear. You, you can't mess with what Jesus Christ looked like. There's four Gospels that all say the exact same thing about what he did and how he lived his life. All right? There's a lot of other scriptures that you can say, this is what Christianity is. Or this is, okay, fine. But the scriptures are, aren't what being sown in us. The word of God, Jesus Christ, is sown in us. And he will help us understand the word, small w, of God. You see how important that is? So it's going to look like this. All right? And that's why Jesus was always... And number two, sorry, seeds, and, and this, is, this is cool as we, as we wrap around this, sorry. It's been a long week, so I'm not as familiar with my notes as I should be. I apologize for that. Thanks for being patient. Seeds function in a mystery. Seeds function in a mystery and always do what they're supposed to do. Seeds function in a mystery and always do what they're supposed to do. That's why Jesus was always using seed imagery. Think about it. His re entire redemptive work is done in mystery. First of all, no one knows what happened between Friday and Sunday. No one. The, the scriptures are completely silent on what happened between his death and resurrection. So that's a mystery. And number two, no one really knows how the whole thing redeems the world anyway. We've talked about that a lot here at Cana. I've even talked about it on Sunday mornings, Easter Sunday mornings. When, you know, people want to prove the resurrection, prove an empty tomb. Okay, great. So even if we can prove that, how do, it doesn't tell us how it works. We still have to believe it works. So it's more like Luther. What Luther says, I love this line from Luther, it cannot be known, only believed and trusted. I love that. And that's the mystery of what seeds do. And to my second point, the seed always does its work. Christ did the work. It is finished. Redemption has come. See, it's beautiful when we get this understanding, and this is going to help us now as we move in. Okay, so now let's get into the parable for our purposes today. Okay, and here's where we're going. And I want to go back to my attempts at gardening. Like the sower, I had done the work I was supposed to do. I sowed the seeds without prejudice. Every part of the garden that I worked, I planted seeds. And the seeds did the work they were supposed to do. They died and disappeared, offering their lives. They all did it. And it, some people argue and say, David, that's not true. Even in the parable, Jesus said the seeds didn't, you know, all the seeds did the work. Yeah, but those seeds that get eaten by birds. Yeah, that's one of the coolest parts of the parable. Notice how Jesus sort of calls them Satan, right? I don't think he's disparaging birds. I, I tend to think Jesus liked birds, but like it worked with his metaphor. And what's really cool about this is one of the things we all know in nature is, yeah, birds eat seeds, and then they poop seeds out, and then it grows over there. Seeds always do what they're supposed to do. And that's one of the greatest things about the way Jesus talks about evil and the way God works with evil. It's like, yeah, do whatever you want. I don't care. I'm just going to use it anyway. He's often using Satan to spread his word. It's beautiful. Like, that's a key part. Oh, I wish we were spending weeks in this parable. I love it so much. But anyway, so seeds always do what they do. So I planted... My seeds did what they were supposed to do. Some plants ran with that, and some did not. But the plants that did not produce flowers had not been neglected by me. 
Please be aware of that. Hear that. I did not neglect them. I didn't just water this part of the garden. I watered them all the same. I fed them all the same. Nor was I going to punish any of them for failing to produce flowers. I wanted them all to grow. I didn't punish them for their wrong response to the seed. Nor did I take away their ability to grow because I was angry with them. For some reason, they simply did not grow. But it was not punishment or lack of desire on my part. In fact, I was more sad than anything because these plants failed to become what I, had, what I and the seed had intended for them. They were much less than a real sunflower. They were missing out on what it meant to be a magnificent, beautiful, authentic sunflower. And I think in this parable, Jesus teaches it's the same with God and us. And in this parable, understood, destroys so many hurtful and harmful theologies. Our lack of bearing fruit, our lack of allowing the seed to grow in us, is not some form of punishment from an angry God, who did not like our response to his seed, nor is it some form of divine double cross in which he sows only good seed in some people and bad seed in others because he only wants some people in the kingdom. How hurtful is that? How, how, how do you even communicate that as good news? Instead, when we fail to bear fruit, we are the ones missing out. It's not some slight to God that he gets all bent out of shape over. Please, how small is that God that gets bent out of shape because of how we respond to him? Come on. That's what we do. When we're ignored or we're threatened or we're disobeyed, right, or we're hated, oh, we get all work. God doesn't. But that's why we think God does, because we like to worship ourselves. So we project all of this simple humanity onto God. Right? But the God of the Bible is not diminished because we do not respond to him properly. God the sower and Christ the seed always accomplish their work. It is we who suffer our own incompleteness when we do not respond. His intention for us is to move into human being that is beautiful, magnificent, authentic kings and queens of the kingdom. Why I played that video this morning. So, we say, as you listen to me, well, David, I get it, but no matter how hard I try, my life is not always filled with fruit. And I get that. But that's the secret Paul's talking about. It's because we're trying. Honest. Works don't produce fruit. Works don't produce fruit. But before we get to Galatians, let's listen to Christ talking about fruit bearing in John 15. He calls himself the true vine and his disciples the branches. He then tells them that the branches cannot bear fruit unless they remain in the vine. Now, I know this is another one of these passages that we've heard from the time immemorial, but maybe we've lost something over time listening to it or maybe not really diving into it. This is incredibly revealing. Branches... Don't grow fruit. The vine grows the fruit. They just come out on the branches. The branch's job is not to grow fruit. 
The branch's job is to make sure it's connected to the vine. Or let's use it, let's just take the imagery slightly further. Think of the whole vine. Even the vine's job is not to grow fruit. Don't use this imagery, just go to a vine. Don't, I'm off of his parable for a second. Just think of a vine or any tree that bears fruit. What is it focused on? Just getting nutrients out of the ground. Then fruit comes. This is incredibly revealing. We, to bear fruit, simply need to abide. That's a, that's a Christianese word, so let's use the word like allow or trust or stay focused on the nutrients that cause fruit in our lives and trust that Christ will bear fruit in us. He's in us trying to bear this fruit. That's what he's trying to do. So in the parable that we're looking at, Notice what Jesus says, the plants that bear fruit. Jesus says they simply hear the word and accept the word, and then the fruit is born. Think about that. That's beautiful. But don't try not to, unfortunately, if you can. Something happened in the last like, 100 years here in America, especially, where we got this hyper-individualized idea of salvation that had to do with uh, knowledge. Don't do that. Unfortunately, this, this, this is what led to that. People said, all you got to do is hear this thing and say this word or believe a certain, and mentally accept. That's not what Jesus is getting at here. This is a big deal. This is those who hear it and, and accept it, those who trust it, who focus on it, who make it part of their lives. Okay? They hear the word and accept it, and then the fruit is born. It's not that they do anything at all. It's that they don't do things which get in the word's way. So now we're getting into really where Paul's going. So look what Jesus says about all, these, all, the, all the people that don't bear fruit. Look at this. Worries, desires, demons, afflictions. A lot going on. A lot going on. But the ones that did bear fruit, simply hearing and accepting. Simply hearing and accepting. Staying connected to Christ, not appeasing God. So the parable tells us fruit bearing is because of our response to the seed. But our response is not working to grow fruit. It's not working to be good Christians. It's not working to impress other Christians. It's not, it's our response is staying focused on God's love for us. Or to use last week's imagery, feeding the good wolf. Feeding the good wolf. All right, and see, this is so helpful, I think for me anyway, as we are now going to tackle Galatians chapter 5 starting next week in these things. But what I want to do as a preview, notice the brilliant ways right here that Paul contrasts this. This is not mistake. This is Paul being brilliant Paul. Fruit works. Fruit works. Works only lead to this. Only. And I don't care how good the work is. Listen, go down a little bit, get, get through the, the, the top ones, which always seem to get focused on, and go to the ones that are really important. Hatred, discord, jealousy, fits of rage, selfish ambition, dissensions, factions. Those are the big ones. And when we get in there, we're going we're, we're to focus on those ones because no one focused on those. And you know what? You can use that to describe the state of the church in the world today. And they're all doing good works. 
Think about that. This is why Paul said the law can only bring death. That's it. You can get on Facebook and you can get on, not even Facebook, boy, Jen and I read this article a couple weeks ago, which is in line with something I was teaching, and the article was amazing. Then you get the comments, commentaries, and these are all Christian people just hating on each other. Working, working to save the kingdom and the purity of doctrine, and you're wrong and you're stupid and you're going to hell, and really? Works create jealousy, discord, hatred, fits of rage, selfish ambition, dissensions, factions. That's what work does. And, and, and I know I've spent half my life working, which is why my life at times has been amazingly lacking in fruit. Because you can't work to grow fruit. You have to focus on Jesus, and then fruit just grows. So Paul is really keen here in, in breaking this down. Grace, by definition, is free. It is undeserved. It cannot be bought, earned, won, stolen. It can only be received. And so when we try to save ourselves or get God's love or attention or blessings, whatever we do to appease God, all we're going to end up with is those works. All right? But when we trust grace, when we trust that God really did die for us, and that grace is the final reality, well, then we bear these spectacular fruits. These are not rewards we get for doing right, or being good Christians, or our own efforts to be the right kind of soil, or running around trying to follow a list of things to do or not to do, or working to appease God. No, no, no. These fruits are the things God always intended for us, for all of us the things for which we were made, these are the things we walked away from. And God just died to give it back to us because he loves us so much. And he gives them to us for free because God does not need to be appeased. If he did, the Bible story would read very different. God just needs to be trusted that he is in love with us and always will be. And trusting that he is in love with us and all we will be is how we feed the good wolf from last week's metaphor. So I've got like four, four images in your head now, so it should be sufficiently confused. <laughs> we have to constantly focus on the gospel of Jesus Christ and who he is and what he is like, not what we think in our humanity we should do. So then what does this parable look like practically? What does this parable look like practically as we close up? Well. I think it means letting the seed do what it is trying to do. Letting his mysterious, crazy, ludicrous love to work in and through us. And often that is simply getting out of the way. Getting out of the way. Honestly. So you're thinking, I don't even know how I get in the way, so how I can get out of the way? Well, here, remember, the seed God sows in us is Jesus Christ, right? So we are going to be plants that bear fruit consistent with Christ's likeness. The very center of the seed sown in us, the very DNA, if you will, of the plant we are to be is the cross and all it stands for. This is the plant that's trying to grow in us. These are the fruits that are trying to come out. So if we don't like those fruits, or I should say, because, I mean, the, 
everyone likes the fruit. But if we don't like what it means bearing those fruits, living out forgiveness, grace, love for even our enemies, then we're going to get in the way of that. That's all. We're just going to get in the way of it. So when we're looking around and we're like, where's the fruit in my life? What I've been doing lately is just ask myself, where am I getting in the way of this fruit? Right? A lot of places I get in the way of this fruit. A lot. So you've got to ask yourself in your own life, where do you get in the way of that fruit? Is it in an interpersonal relationship? Family? Someone at work? People on the streets? People of other religions? People of other countries? People of other ideas and beliefs? Where are you getting in the way of fruit in your life? Where are you feeding the bad wolf? And encouraging these, these things that will just come out eventually. You have, to, you have to find that in your own life. When we rationalize behavior that is different than Christ-likeness, we're getting in the way of fruit. That's all. That's all Paul's getting at. Not to work harder, not to do any of that. Just don't rationalize behavior that's different than Christ-likeness. And watch. He'll give us the ability to live like him. I think if we can get out of the way of the seed, we will find we are good soil after all, just the way God intended. And then we can focus on what we can do. Spend time in the story of God's love for us. Do that. See, it's not a work. It's not a work. Oh, you better, better read scripture or God's going to be mad. No. You read scripture because that's the nutrients, that's the beauty, it's the story of God and his love for us. We should read it, and we should read about it. Like that video this morning. That video to me is filling my soul with the beauty of God. I don't think Jared Leto intended to write the gospel. But if the gospel is the ultimate truth, then all these beautiful stories are ultimately going to lead into that myth and that truth and that beauty. It's, it's awesome. Spend time sharing it with ourselves and each other. Tell each other the gospel. I just spend more time in ministry just telling people God loves them. People that have heard it since they were little, but that's all we need to hear over and over again. And if God loves us, in the end, it's all going to be okay, no matter how dark it gets. We need to join together to remember it. That's why we do this every Sunday. Come together to remember it breaking bread and drinking wine, we remember God died for us because he loves us. Come together and sing together. And as I talked about earlier, just sit with God and let him tell us just how much he loves us. Spend time praying, meditating on what Christ-likeness is, sending our roots deep into the source of the nutrition that will just cause fruit to grow. The seed in us, Jesus Christ, has died to grow in us to make us our true selves, fruit-bearing images of God, Beautiful, magnificent, authentic, glorious kings and queens of the kingdom of God. So let's together, let's let him finish what he has started in us. Amen.